Good evening, I'm Lister Sinclair, and this is Ideas. Tonight you'll hear the concluding program in David Cayley's three-part series, Being Born. The series was made from interviews and recordings done this past summer at the first International Congress on Pre- and Perinatal Psychology held in Toronto. Now, this Congress was organized by Toronto psychiatrist Dr. Tom Verney and brought together people from around the world who share the view that babies have an active mental life both before and during birth and that their thoughts, impressions and feelings during this period have real and lasting consequences in their lives. In the first program, which was called Memories, David Cayley reported evidence from this Congress that our life from birth and before can actually be remembered. He considered theoretical explanations of how this might happen and what its consequences for psychology might be. In the second program, he looked more closely at the phenomenon of prenatal communication between mother and child. And tonight, the subject is birth itself. How does our current childbirth system affect mothers and babies? And what are the implications for this system of the findings of perinatal psychology? Here's David Cayley with Being Born, Part 3. Birth is a borderline between two states of existence. Labor shakes the tiny microcosm of the womb like an earthquake, and we are impelled on our journey into the unknown. New sensations, new experiences, new feelings rush in upon us as we are squeezed and then pushed on our way. A journey of inches may last for hours. And then light, new sounds, air, and if we are fortunate, the safe haven of our mother's arms. Later on in life, we will model other transitions on this first and most strenuous passage from one state to another. In birth, new life erupts in our midst, and often it seems we are not quite flexible or receptive enough to make way for it. Birth then becomes a traumatic, unfinished event which continues to reverberate through our lives. Even normal birth can be an emotionally and physically overwhelming experience, and perhaps for this reason, it tends to cut off the memories of pregnancy and prenatal life for both mother and baby. Interesting confirmation of this idea comes from the research of Colleen Stanton, an associate professor of nursing at the University of Calgary. She has found that mothers who have known their babies well in utero do not seem to connect this knowledge with the newborn. Speaking to a mother one day whose baby wouldn't settle and she was walking up and down the unit, a one-day-old baby, and I said to her, what did that baby do when you were walking around two days ago when it was in the uterus? And she said, oh, that's when it was always really busy. And I said to her, fairly experimentally, because I didn't know, that's the same baby. And she looked so surprised and sat down, and when she sat down, the baby went to sleep within 30 seconds. And then I used that several other times with mothers who were having babies hard to settle and found the same thing, that they were doing something different than what they knew about that baby prior to birth. And they had such incredible trouble connecting, and they looked so surprised, and they'd hold the baby out in front of them and say, oh, you're right, you know, I'd forgotten, or I didn't think of that, or whatever. And I've been interested now in the, the disconnection or connection between parents' 
perception of their unborn baby and what they indeed get to know, because some of the interviews I've done, parents know a great deal about their baby, all of which is verified by the scientific evidence of what newborns can do, and how surprised they are to find that the newborn recognizes their voice, that the newborn will smile, that the newborn will express anger or refuse to eat or is awake much more than they expected it to be even though they can describe for me that this baby in utero would be awake for fairly extended periods of time. So one of the things I want to look at next is what makes that disconnection. What are your initial thoughts about it? Well, one of the things that parents have described to me prenatally is a fairly strong sense of what the baby looks like. They have a much stronger sense of what that baby looks like than I would have thought they did. And that's been the thing that doesn't check out so much postpartum. Of course, the baby tends to look somewhat different. Um, they dream about an older baby. They hope for a baby that's different even than their dream baby or their real baby. So they've got three kind of perceptions there. But the baby that they interact with in the uterus, those that do interact with it, they have a fairly clear idea. And I don't know whether that difference in appearance makes the difference, or whether the baby is adapting to the extrauterine environment, the mother's adapting to the baby being out of the uterus. Some mothers experience some sense of loss at that time, and there's just a whole sort of period of transition. But what really fascinates me is they don't really think about that information they had prenatally, and whether labor is such a profound event that they, or whether we talk about the new baby, the brand new baby, new parents. We don't connect that also in our language surrounding childbirth with prenatal time. As I listened to Colleen Stanton's tentative explanations of what she had observed, they seemed plausible enough to me, and yet I wondered whether there wasn't something more. Mightn't the discontinuity arise not just from our language, not just from the upheaval of labor, but also from the way in which we pattern childbirth as a potentially painful, fearful, and dangerous experience, for which one needs to be institutionalized. This patterning then separates us from both the primal and the sacred dimensions of birth. We lose connection with our babies and ourselves. In the hospital, concern focuses on survival and certain crude measures of physical well-being. The success of the obstetrical system is measured in mortality statistics. The quality of the experience is considered an extra. Indeed, it is not at all uncommon to hear obstetricians accusing women who wish to give birth at home of self-indulgence, as if the feelings of the mother and the outcome of the birth had nothing to do with one another. The separation of birth as a physical event from birth as a psychological event is an expression of the mind-body split which has characterized our culture generally. In fact, for the baby, until very recently, birth was not considered a psychological event at all. Psychologist David Chamberlain. For generations, doctors have assumed that a baby doesn't really know what's going on at birth. They don't expect them to have any memory of what's done to them. They don't expect them to really care about how they're handled. They certainly don't expect them to be thinking about anything or learning anything. And for this reason, they just sort of do whatever they want to do medically to babies at the time they're born. And shortly after they're born, pediatricians have been circumcising babies without any regard whatsoever to the pain involved. And they've been telling each other all these years 
passing it down from uh, professor to student, that what you're looking at with a baby screaming bloody murder is nothing but a reflex. It's not a, nothing real about that. Even psychologists up until very recently, and I'm sure some still do, believe that a baby is a kind of subhuman being, not all there, literally. Perhaps won't even be there for about a year in terms of real mind activity. Well, I think that this is tragic. It's been tragic as far as birth is concerned for most of us because very few of us have been born under anything like ideal circumstances uh, unless we were born suddenly and accidentally at home before anybody was around to interfere with us. It is easy to see how the baby's experience could be overlooked by those who believed that, in effect, the baby was not having an experience. But treating birth as a problem in body mechanics has involved overlooking the experience of mothers as well. And in order to do this, doctors have had to invoke the twin gods of safety and science. Sheila Kitzinger is a British anthropologist and childbirth educator, and she believes that safety and science are sham justifications, which are used to defend practices which actually have a ritual significance. They're using intervention as a series of ceremonial rites to turn women into patients and to make them become submissive and compliant. This is happening in our hospitals with a great many rights which have never been properly researched to prove that they are useful, helpful to labor. Things like shaving of the perineum, which reduces a woman to an infantile prepubertal state. She's got a bottom like a seven-year-old girl. Things like using an enema, giving an enema, or suppositories, that's a ritual purging from pollution. Things like immobilizing the woman, tethering her to an intravenous drip or to an electronic monitor, showing her that the shamans and witch doctors, the doctors who have taken over the role of the priesthood, in fact, have complete control over the inner workings of her body, the most intimate workings of her body, and that of her baby, too. I think, you see, all these rites are being used to show a woman that she is helpless, powerless, to inculcate a learned submissiveness. And I see them as an anthropologist, as having this very important ritual function to enforce the power of the institution. And I think we should question and go on questioning every single one of them because we need controlled studies, randomized trials, to show that these things really are effective, that they really do have use for women and for babies. And at the moment, much obstetric intervention has not been proved useful in this way. Sheila Kitzinger is not using the term ceremonial rites here in some loose metaphoric sense. It is her belief that many hospital practices are precisely analogous to transitional rituals which have been observed by anthropologists throughout the world. In many primitive societies, elders who represent the ancestors don masks or other frightening garments and they terrify the initiates. The idea is that to mark this crossing over the bridge into the next social status, to make it important, you have to introduce terror. 
And since people might not consider this a terrifying situation normally, you have actually to introduce fearful situations to tell terrifying stories and so on. And I think there's, without doctors and nurses being at all conscious or aware of this, and without them being, I'm not suggesting that it's personal nastiness, mm. we do actually, by taking women into alien institutions that they don't know and putting them amongst strangers and um, surrounding them by machinery and not giving them full information on which to make choices between alternatives, not in fact often allowing them any choices, we do artificially create a frightening situation for many women. And I'm sure you see this, for example, in hospitals with immigrant women, particularly. Do you think, in fact, ritual observances under the control of women are appropriate? Is the issue one of ritual or one of control? Uh, the, issue is, the issue is one of control. Who has authority, who controls the place in which birth takes place? That's basically it, because the power is with those who control. If you have a baby at home, the doctor, the midwife, are guests in your home. I've had five children all born at home, and each time the people who came to help were guests. It was my home. My husband and I were in control. When you go into hospital, you surrender control. I think, too, that the issue is what the rituals are being used for. Our modern hospital rights are used to reinforce the power of institutions, hierarchical, large, and bureaucratic institutions. Now, third, in third world societies, rituals of childbirth, for example, are very often used to provide a metaphor a series of symbols which have meaning for the couple having the baby, the family, the kin group, the lineage, and the larger society. And they're also used to harness the power of natural forces. Let me give you an example of that. In parts of southern India, a very tightly furled flower, looking apparently dead, is put beside the woman in labor. And in the heat of the labor room, the petals gradually unfurl wider and wider and wider. And she knows that as those petals open, her cervix is opening. And she knows that when the petals are spread wide, she will be fully dilated. So it is a very powerful outward symbol of an inner physiological process, and is psychologically, of course, very important and emotionally supportive for her. Supportive rituals of this kind actually help to advance labor. Unsupportive hospital rituals may have the opposite effect. Nevertheless, many couples acquiesce in these rituals. In her address to the Perinatal Psychology Congress, Sheila Kitzinger suggested that one of the reasons may be that they have been taught to do so. In the past, I believe that birth education has often reinforced the power of professionals by introducing yet more rules, more constraints on women, and preparing them to exert self-discipline, not to cry out, to be nice to the nurse and the doctor, to cooperate, to obey instructions, 
to wait to push in the second stage until you have been given permission. This issue of control is basic. For to be in control in this context is to surrender control to the obstetric team. It's called patient compliance. And the great aim of, for example, drugs, many drugs, pain-relieving drugs used in labor, is, according to the blurb of the drug companies, to get a fully cooperative patient. <laughs> in many childbirth classes, and especially those taught in hospitals, women are taught to be ready to compromise, to ask for things tactfully, not to antagonize the staff, not to have preconceived ideas about what they want the birth to be, to avoid setting their sights too high, and to use feminine wiles. <laughs> they are being conditioned to submission. The ultimate point of all this, according to Sheila Kitzinger, is to enforce dependency. Parents are taught from the beginning that they share responsibility for their children with professional experts. And for Kitzinger, the rituals which mark the transition to motherhood indicate very clearly that ultimately it is the experts who know best. The kind of care we provide in our society, I believe, treats women as irresponsible and selfish children. They are not expected to behave like adults. They are not treated as adults. They are simply sucked into the obstetric system. Now, quite often, it is a beneficent system. At other times, it is not. But the whole point is that women are not treated as if they could be responsible for themselves or their bodies or their babies. And this is artificially producing a child mother who is, continues to be dependent, who is unable to make decisions, who becomes very anxious when she's supposed to take on the full responsibility of the baby and who looks to experts for advice. It is a meticulously conditioned helplessness. Sheila Kitzinger offers an essentially political explanation for the interventionist character of hospital-based obstetrics. She sees it as a system by which men dominate women. I think it supplements rather than contradicts her explanation to recognize that there are psychological factors involved as well. Tom Verney is the author of The Secret Life of the Unborn Child. He suggests that obstetricians may sometimes be motivated by a need to protect themselves against their own unwelcome feelings. Their own birth memories, unconscious as they are, are often triggered by the experience. And each of them finds different ways of defending themselves against the anxiety that those birth memories would elicit. Because they always elicit bad feelings. Birth memories are never really positive. What is positive is what happens afterwards when you see the light of day, when you come to your mother's breast, when you feel really close to her, that's fine. But the actual struggle, the actual coming to see the light of day is always traumatic. 
And so much of this is triggered. And so what do obstetricians do? They, they, they start relying more and more on technical interventions because the more they can rely on technique or technical interventions, the less their own feelings can interfere with the process. Obstetricians, of course, are not the only ones who can feel stirred or frightened at a birth. Parents, too, may feel afraid. Mary Sharp is an experienced midwife, and it has been her observation that fear plays a role in every birth. I think of the moment before a woman begins to push, or as she starts to push, there's a fear in her. I, I always feel it myself, and I see it in women. Nearly always there's a, there's a moment of fear that hasn't come before and doesn't seem to come afterwards. She's about to give birth. She's afraid maybe for her own life. She's afraid to let go maybe of this baby. I, I speak of it myself because I feel it every time. And I remember once just being asked, Mary, are you afraid at that moment? And not wanting to answer, but being so grateful that somebody recognized that I was afraid. I didn't want to say, yes, I am afraid, because that didn't quite seem right either. Yeah. But there seems to be a moment for me and a moment for, I think, nearly all women. And I wonder whether this has something to do with a birth memory. I see it in, in fathers, um, just recently, a, a father who's quite in control type of person, but as he looked, at his baby coming out, and as he actually helped lift his baby, his baby was born to the waist, and as he reached down and helped to lift his baby to his wife's breast, his breathing was so, oh, so heavy, and the sweat was pouring from his, his face, and the tears were beginning to come. And I, I see it in, in fathers a lot, this extreme emotion and tension, release of tension, and I don't know whether it comes from, oh, thank God my baby's all right, or... But um, the father is, is very much in his feelings at that moment. Birth stirs many emotions within us, and perhaps it also touches something deeper than emotion. Stanislav Grof is a psychiatrist whose research with LSD has yielded valuable insight into the psychological meaning of birth. He believes that in our encounter with birth, we touch a mystery. It certainly is true in my work, if you do regressive work, whether you use psychedelics or whether you use non-drug techniques, like the ones we have developed now using uh, breathing, evocative music, and, and uh, body work, when the regression reaches the level of, let's say, early postnatal life or birth itself or prenatal life, the experiences always would become what Jung called numinous. They have a kind of sacred quality. You, you don't have the feeling that you're just uh, experiencing something that is emotional and biological. You also have the feeling that you're participating in a, in a mystery, that there is a sense of sacredness about it. And so in that sense, there is some primary quality about uh, these experiences, which involves the mystical element. But if you are an adult observer of those phenomena, the ability to perceive that dimension can be totally suppressed. And, you know, 
certainly believe that medical training uh, that obstetricians have quite specifically suppresses any any elements of perception that would uh, allow this kind of numinous element to emerge in that situation. And it, it even goes so far that it suppresses quite systematically the emotional element to show any emotions uh, while you are conducting a delivery would be seen certainly as a kind of uh, professional flaw. You know, you are trained specifically in medicine to face these things, birth or death, suffering and so on, was a certain kind of professional uh, equanimity. When we do this work, for example, in groups, when somebody would just relive birth, it is for many people who are present there, it's such a powerful stimulus that they would go through very, very strong emotional reaction. And it happens that there could be several people in the group who would actually have their own birth process triggered. So sometimes it's almost like a chain reaction. So you have to expect that participating in actual biological birth would also stir up very powerful emotions. If you are not guarded, if you are not sort of specifically trained to suppress them, or uh, if you let the event get to you, if you just don't focus on certain chains of professional activities. These chains of professional activity are precisely what lead to routine interference with birth. At one time, at the time I was born, for example, mothers were often drugged unconscious at the moment of birth, while a sluggish, also drugged baby was pulled into the world with forceps. Today, the use of knockout drugs has been largely eliminated, but epidural anesthesia remains common. Forceps are now generally used more prudently as well, but the rate of caesarean sections has trebled in less than 15 years. David Cheek is a San Francisco obstetrician and hypnotherapist, and he believes it is critically important that a mother be able to welcome her child at birth. The mother being put to sleep for delivery with an anesthetic so that she isn't able to wake to welcome her baby as all mother mammals do. They lick their young, they nurse them right away, can be very disruptive to the child. Things of this sort, in obstetrics, we often put people under drugs that make the mother so drowsy, so drugged, that she isn't able to say hello to her baby, and a baby feels rejected. And this shows in a film that I made a number of years ago of two women that could not hear their mother speak, and they showed how it was when they really were born feeling miserable and alone. And then we got them to hallucinate how it would have been using their later knowledge of their mother. And it's, it's beautiful to see the change in expression, the, the change in their reactions. And I've had mothers and daughters who didn't get along ever because each thought the other one didn't love them, who have suddenly realized that they had a very close relationship once they understood that it wasn't the baby's fault, wasn't mother's fault, it was the doctor or the hospital that gave the anesthetic. Obstetrical intervention takes place in response to what are presumed to be real physical problems. But here, once again, we run into our assumption that physical and psychological problems represent different orders of reality. David Cheek believes that many complications of pregnancy and childbirth have a psychological origin and can therefore be anticipated and often avoided. 
the mother who originally doesn't want to be pregnant may get to worrying about the baby. Is it normal? Uh, did my thoughts affect the baby? And she may not sleep very well. She may have dreams of a baby being abnormal as she approaches term. This may make her develop atoxemia or to bleed or to be afraid to see the baby and actually hold back in labor. So that uh, I, I really can't tell you whether it's the baby or the mother that makes the difference, but I do know that it's very important to explore the nighttime sleep processes, and I, I used to do this with all my obstetrical patients. I'd go over a night of sleep when they come in for a checkup and ask their fingers, were there any troubled dreams or thoughts last night? I used to teach them that if they awaken during the night feeling scared, to be able to analyze what they were thinking about just before they got scared, because often the source of premature labor the source of hemorrhage, the source of uh, the beginnings of uh, high blood pressure in pregnancy, late in pregnancy, were due to repeated nighttime sleep processes. By exploring these processes, Dr. Cheek believes that complications of pregnancy can be detected and dealt with. His technique involves the use of hypnosis, along with something he calls ideomotor questioning. This involves questioning the inner or unconscious mind directly by assigning two of the fingers to answer yes or no. Here he gives an example of the use of this technique. A woman can call you at 2 o'clock in the morning saying, I'm hemorrhaging, doctor. And in order to keep her from concentrating on the fact that she's hemorrhaging and that she's afraid, I ask her, now let me see, which is your yes finger in about that tone of voice? Instead of saying, oh my God, we better get you into the hospital, I just ask her, which is your yes finger? That makes her have to go back to when she was quiet in the office in a relaxed state. She's flashing back to a previous hypnotic state. And I've had people tell me, well, uh, I called you because I'm hemorrhaging, but it isn't running down my leg anymore. I've stopped bleeding. But you say, well, let's find out what made you do it in the first place. Come up from when you fall asleep to the moment something's happening that makes you bleed. And as your yes finger lifts, just tell me the first thing that comes to your mind. They'll say, I'm dreaming that I'm miscarrying the way I did the last time, two years ago. And you say, does your inner mind know that your baby's perfectly okay? You ask that question in a positive term. You see, you don't want to suggest that you think something's wrong with the baby. Say, is your baby okay? And they'll say, well, my yes finger is lifting. Gee, that makes me feel much better. You say, okay, give me a call tomorrow. You don't say, call me if you do any more bleeding, but you get a, a report back the next day. They'll call you if they start to bleed again, but you do not want to suggest that something bad will happen. And in medicine, we're doing this all the time by getting informed consent, for example, we're really suggesting to people that we expect them to have trouble. When we do an amniocentesis, for instance, to see if an older woman has got a deformed or abnormal child, that poor woman may have to wait anywhere from two to six weeks before she knows what's happened with the baby. The, the studies take that long. Well, in the meantime, she's going to be afraid to think, I have a baby. She doesn't want to get too attached to it in case something's wrong with it. And we feel that this may be very harmful, and we, we should give a great deal of thought 
to the repeated amniocentesis that are done mainly for curiosity of the physicians. I think there's much too much invasion of a woman's body during pregnancy. We treat it as though it's a disease. As uh, Grantly Dick Reed said, childbirth is a natural process. It shouldn't be treated as a disease. Dr. Tom Verney. All of us have been acculturated to believe that birth is painful, and so it will be painful. And all the doctors who are around you, who look after you, will say to women during pregnancy, don't worry about birth. When it gets painful, I'll be there, and I'll be able to give you an anesthetic, or I'll be able to give you a painkiller. Now, what that does is, in a very subtle or not so subtle fashion, really, it produces a hypnotic effect on the woman. It really is an indirect suggestion which says you will have pain during birth, and so she will. She usually does. So that we are just surrounded. Our whole society insists on pain during birth. People are really not brought up to respect children. People are not brought up how to deal with women during pregnancy. I mean, an awful lot of social changes need to occur before we can have the kind of non-traumatic birth that I would like to see. So at the present time, what we have to, I think, work for is to make the birth process truly joyful, happy, relaxed, so that it would be a true welcoming of the child to this world instead of sort of the aseptic, technical birth that characterizes so many of today's hospital births. The justification most frequently advanced for this technical and often repressive hospital regimen is safety. Something might go wrong, and the idea has been that such problems cannot be anticipated. They will occur in unpredictable, statistically random ways. But perhaps this is also wrong. Perhaps we simply fail to attend to the signs that are there. A story from Portland obstetrician Bob Doughton illustrates the point. This woman had five consecutive nightmares that her baby died at the very moment it was born. So, at the very moment that her baby was born, the baby died. Now the doctor is being called up in the perinatal death conference at her hospital for improper medical care. And what so is, the lady never told the doctor that this nightmare was going on for her, and the doctor never asked her about dreams, because they don't ask you to ask that in, in obstetrical schools. And here was then this tragedy in the making, and the doctor is now in trouble because of her nightmare. And I maintain that if a woman has nightmares about the baby dying during her pregnancy, this case is extremely high risk. And it should be considered that way. And it should not be considered a normal case except that she had a nightmare. Yes. Yeah. You see, physically, there wasn't anything that, that would indicate this was going to happen. And um, I was horrified to hear this. As a matter of fact, I started crying. That this woman, I said, why didn't you tell him? Well, her experience is that people always made fun of her dreams. You know, and I understand the poignancy of that. I understand that. It's, but you see... Most people are, are into a shuddering, just like you did when they even hear the story. And yet that doctor and that patient didn't think that that made any difference because it wasn't real. It is Bob Doughton's view that the mother's attitude is the single most important influence on the pregnancy and the birth. 
and in The Secret Life of the Unborn Child, Tom Verney cites a number of studies which support this conclusion. When proper attention is paid to this attitude, Dr. Doughton believes that it is possible to have confidence in the outcome of labor in advance, and this confidence eliminates the need for many standard precautionary interventions in labor. Dr. Lewis Meal, a physician from Berkeley, California, also believes that complications of pregnancy and childbirth can be anticipated. And for this reason, he feels that birth at home can be safe. In the early 1970s, Dr. Meal and his associates did a study of home birth in which over a thousand women delivering at home were matched medically with the same number delivering in hospital. The study found fewer complications at home, but Dr. Meal now believes that this can be explained by motivational factors. He has since adopted what he calls a holistic model of risk assessment. What we've been doing since then is we've been doing profiles of individual women in terms of predicting at 36 weeks whether their outcome will be normal or abnormal. What we found is when we look at every aspect of a woman's life that we're, we're over 96% accurate in terms of predicting whether she'll be normal or abnormal. The medical model, the best they can do is about 60%. As it's being practiced now, it's very content-oriented. You get one point if you've had an abortion. You get one point if you're over 35. You get one point if you, know, you weigh a certain amount. And it's all things that can be put on a form and checked off. There's a saying among obstetricians that one-third of every low-risk mother becomes high-risk during labor. And what we found is that if you use a holistic model, that's not so. What we do is more process-oriented in the sense that if a woman is over 35, we say to ourselves, well, what is the context of her life or the process of her life about which she would choose to have a baby now? Or if she's had a previous abortion or a previous traumatic first pregnancy, we say, well, how is that life experience different from how sh who she is now? So we look more at the process of life as opposed to just the simple history. So to me, the better argument now is to say, look, it's really possible to predict the kind of outcomes that someone will have. It's not a statistically random fact. In one study that we did, there were 380 women. And of the ones that we predicted could deliver at home, only two had problems that, that they ended up going to the hospital. And those two just had not emergency problems at all, just little problems. and so. What we believe now is that if one uses a holistic approach, which doesn't fit into the way obstetricians practice because it requires a lot of time, it does fit into the way midwives practice, however. But in terms of using that kind of a risk assessment, it really is possible, I think, to have very safe home births. Birth at home is one of the expressions of a growing popular movement, which is challenging medical control of childbirth. This movement has had a variety of aims, ranging from reforming hospitals to ending the legal jeopardy in which midwives must now practice. Until recently, it has been quite distinct from political feminism, which has concentrated on issues like daycare and abortion. But Sheila Kitzinger believes that, at least in Britain, there are now signs of convergence. I think feminists, certainly in Britain, are coming to see that part of reclaiming our bodies is our right to express ourselves through the 
through our bodies with joy and with real uninhibited, spontaneous feeling and to do our own thing in childbirth, to breastfeed our babies when we want to, where we want to, to have society provide places where we can breastfeed our babies easily so that we don't have to just breastfeed them in smelly lavatories. And I think it, feminists have joined hands in Britain. It actually happened after we had what has come to be known as the Royal Free Protest. There was, there's a big London teaching hospital where the professor in the spring of last year stated that in future every woman in his hospital must be, deliver lying down until he said it was proved that it was safer for them to do it in, in another position or would be as safe to do it in another position. And I got together with another woman. We decided to help those women who were going to have their babies in that hospital to go to another hospital to have their babies where they would be able to be in any position which was comfortable for them. And to also have a meeting of all the women who had had their babies happily in that hospital and been able to adopt positions of their choice. And we thought we might get 80, 100 women. And in the end, it got around on the grapevine and more and more women got interested. And then the head of the police Scotland Yard rang me up, pointing out that to have a protest meeting opposite the hospital wouldn't work, there wasn't room. And we had to move to Parliament Hill Fields. And on that day, 5,000 people turned out on the streets to protest. And that was when it happened. There were old ladies with grey or white hair. There were the Catholic mothers of six or seven. There were nurses, midwives, medical students. There were women with newborn babies cradled against their bodies and with baby buggies and pushchairs. Um, there were whole families. There were lesbian feminists, students, everybody. And we all joined together and it became one common cause. Popular mobilization has also been accompanied by changes in attitude within parts of the medical profession. Their numbers may still be few, but there are now doctors who are practicing a holistic style of obstetrics. One such is Michel Audin, a general surgeon who runs the obstetric unit of a public hospital in the town of Pithiviers in France. He describes the evolution of his thinking from the time he arrived in Pithiviers in the early 1960s. I understood better and better that sometimes it would have been possible to prevent a caesarean I had the feeling that often the midwives used to disturb the physiological and natural process of childbirth. And sometimes I used to ask them some questions. For example, why did you break the membranes? Or later, why do you cut the cord at once, for example? They always answered, it's what we learned at school. They just repeated what they learned at school. So together, we tried to be more critical, and we tried to have another view of obstetrics. And we tried first not to disturb the natural process. Mm -hmm. And this is a, the opposition between our attitude and the conventional attitude. In a conventional place, the first aim is always to control at any time, to know exactly what happens, to know at any time what is the rate of the heart, baby's heartbeat, for example, to know at any time, uh, any detail concerning the process of childbirth. To control is always to disturb. To control is always to interfere when an event, which is a part of sexual life, is concerned. 
if you want to control people doing intercourse, you'll disturb. Mm. It's the same. Mm. So our main attitude was first to help the physical process. Mm. And it looks simple to say that, but it's really to, to create something completely different. Mm -hmm. And when I say not to disturb, it's also not to disturb the first contact between mother and baby. Mm. So we started from a conventional attitude, and progressively we could reach another way, another approach of obstetrics. Dr. O'Donnell believes that a woman in labor needs to achieve an altered state of consciousness in which inhibition and all upper brain activity are reduced. He feels that this is essential both for the progress of labor and for the bonding of mother and newborn after birth. But he notes that the conditions which would foster this state of mind are rarely present. There are some very simple factors which are completely forgotten in our obstetric hospitals. For example, a strong light will disturb women in labor, will stop the labor sometimes. It's easy to show that a woman who is not in a familiar place, who is not at ease, who is not like at home, will have a an, an more difficult delivery. And it's easy to observe that if a woman, as early as the first stage of labor, does not feel completely free to be in any posture, to express freely all her emotions. And you cannot express freely your emotions if your body is not free. Mm. The labor will be more difficult. So there are some very simple factors we have to observe not to disturb the process of childbirth. Sheila Kitzinger. I think we have actually imposed on birth in our Western societies a male view of sexuality. When a man has an ejaculation, there's first of all tension, engorgement, then ejaculation, and it's all over. In the second stage of labor, the expulsive stage of labor, each contraction is often treated by the staff trying to help the woman in exactly that way. They say, take a deep breath and hold it, and now oh, come on, push, 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 push. Come on, you can do better than that and then it's over, and they wait for the next one. And this isn't a female rhythm at all. When women really listen to their second stage contractions, they come in waves, and there are waves of desire to push with each contraction, inside each contraction. And this is exactly the same as the female orgasm, which isn't a one-off thing at all. There are waves of mounting desire, each culminating in fulfillment, and then there is a fall away of the wave, a sort of space, a trough in between the waves, and then another wave builds up. And this is the female rhythm. And I think we need to rediscover the female rhythms in childbirth in order to really be in tune with our bodies and be able to go with our bodies instead of fighting them or trying to dominate them or running away from the sensations we experience. For this to happen, requires an atmosphere that is both free and supportive. This support can sometimes come from a husband or partner, but it may also need to come from another woman who is felt as caring and experienced. As a result, a growing number of women are choosing to be attended in labor by a midwife. Mary Sharp, 
who spoke on the practice of midwifery at the Congress, has been present at the birth of two of my own children, and her remarks conclude tonight's program. Who should be present at a birth? I think people who care and who are careful, full of care, who are quiet, who say very little so that there's a lot that is allowed, so that any way that the woman wants to go, it, her stamp of what happens comes out. We should be much more, much more invisible. We should really be, be attendants and uh, be very, very careful of everything. Everything matters. Absolutely, in our whole life, everything matters. You know, the careless way that we speak to one another or the careless ways we treat our children. Every single thing matters. You know, the light in the room, the, the warmth, the blankets that may be around the mother, how cold she is, how warm she is, how, what people are saying. To really understand that everything matters and to not to be too precious, but to be aware of that. Tension can enter when we get too precious or too over-careful. So to have a certain relaxation within ourselves, all of us, I think anybody who's there, to try to be open to what's happening, but to be careful. The allowing attitude from your side suggests that from the other side, what should happen is that the, the couple, the mother in particular, should be able to be expressive in birth. Oh, yes. Is that oh, right? Yes. Women are. Women are. I'm feeling so much that um, birth is an incredibly... Well, we know it's, it's creative. I mean, it is creation itself. But the ways in which women move and work through their labors and uh, through their births, the way couples work through their labors and births, those ways are amazingly creative, as long as we don't try to say how a woman should breathe, how she should stand, how she should sit, how she should walk, how she should uh, manifest as she's giving birth. And we allow, we pay attention to what she's doing and support that. And uh, women are enormously creative, and the sounds they make are, are gorgeous and wonderful. And we can help allow them by saying things like, you know, let us know how it feels. Let us know with your voice how it is for you. Um, women, I think, would do that automatically if they hadn't been taught controlled breathing, if they hadn't been made to feel that uh, they mustn't express themselves noisily, otherwise they'll be letting their partner down in a certain way or they'll be losing control or losing it. And so sometimes by just saying something simple as just tell us all how it feels that allows a woman to release something in her throat, make some noises, whatever. I mean, not to say to, to write any sort of scripts that women right. have to be noisy either, because some people want to be very quiet. <laughs> I tend to be quite quiet and inner yeah. when I'm laboring until I actually start to push, and that's just my way, I guess. But yes, the variety of ways in which women express themselves is just extraordinary. And one, as a, an, a birthing attendant, can feel privileged, only really privileged, to be present in the force of that energy and that creativity.
On Ideas tonight, the final program in our series, Being Born. The series was prepared and presented by David Cayley, producer Bernie Lucht. Technical operations, Charlie Cheffins, Mike Furness, and Lorne Tulk. You can get a free reading list for these programs by writing to us at Ideas, Post Office Box 500, Station A, Toronto, M5W1E6. Printed transcripts are also available at a cost of $5. You can order one by writing to Being Born, CBC Transcripts, Post Office Box 500, Station A, Toronto, M5W1E6. Please enclose a check or money order for $5, payable to CBC Transcripts, and be patient. It may take five or six weeks before you get your transcript. Ideas executive producer is Robert Prowse. I'm Lister Sinclair. Next week is National Universities Week in this country, and on Sunday, Ideas begins a five-part series called Hard Times in the Ivory Tower. The series will run throughout the week. It'll look at the economic crisis facing our universities today and at the further question of what role they'll play in our society in the future. Hard Times in the Ivory Tower starting Sunday night on Ideas.